Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Detroit Athletic Club, Michigan Real Estate Mastermind's quarterly event. Give yourselves a round of applause for making it out today in this beautiful day. Thank you. My name is Keith Stonehouse, the founder of Michigan Real Estate Masterminds. And people always ask me, what are the masterminds? Where did you come up with this idea? What is the idea of it? What's the agenda? What's the goal? The idea uh, of this event or this group was started about... Six years ago, when I traveled out to California in a real estate conference and noticed one major thing that California real estate agents do and focus on and have mastered that Michigan real estate professionals have not, and pretty much still to this day have not, except for within the Michigan real estate masterminds, is work well together from other firms, creating relationships and bonds and learning and growing uh, from one another and that in California blew my mind because I saw the top producing real estate professionals in California making up reasons to get together and work with one another and grow their business, create relationships when a deal comes down to the wire, uh, that they have that relationship and mastermind what works, what doesn't work. So I brought that idea back to Michigan and created the Michigan Real Estate Masterminds. This event happens every quarter here at the DAC. They've done a great job. Again, let's put a, our hands together for the DAC. Thank you to the staff. Staff always does an amazing job for us. Thank you to David Brooks for helping me bring it here. David Brooks is my, my partner in putting this on. Thank you, David Brooks. Thank you, Nev Matari of True Spaces for helping us put this on as well. Nev, stand up. He's outside. He's the one who was signing you in. Yes. Uh, so also with the Masterminds, we meet six times a month in six different cities across Metro Detroit, including St. Clair Shores, downtown Rochester, Clarkston, Birmingham. Um, am I missing one? Utica, downtown Utica. See, you have some Masterminds here. This is great. Northville, which will be tomorrow, uh, where we have uh, complimentary continuing education for realtors at Aubrey's at 1130 in, in Northville. But before we continue, I want everyone to take out your smartphone, and I'm going to say something that will probably be different from what you're used to hearing. Take your smartphones out and hold them up in the air. Smartphone. If you don't have a smartphone, please leave the room. (laughs) All right. Do not shut them off. Do not put them on silent or or silent or stunned, but post that you are here on social media. Check in. Take a picture. Tag somebody. Let folks know what you do for a living. This is the idea of the masterminds. How do we help each other? This is a great way. This is a great way of doing something I call selling but not selling. You're letting people know what you do for a living. You're trying to better your craft. You're in a high-end establishment. You're trying to, to, to be a better professional. Let folks know that. Take selfies, video, take pictures of me from far, far away, far away. Do not Zoom. <laughs> Tom is taking a selfie, and it's a pretty good-looking one, too. Yeah. All right. So the group consists of Michigan real estate agents, commercial and residential, real estate investors, mortgage loan officers, and anybody under the umbrella that works and services real estate. So moving forward with that, I'd like to thank you to Jeremy Burgess, standing over here, who just got caught off guard by me saying that. <laughs> He's the owner and operator of Renegade Detroit Investors. He's going to be doing a podcast today, which is, I think, filming right now. Yes. And you can find that on iTunes 
Detroit, Renegade Detroit Investors. So thank you, Jeremy, for that. Speaking of working under the umbrella of real estate, um, I want to say thank you to our sponsors who made this happen today. Every time we put on an event, we have great sponsors. Uh, some of you know that I just chartered four boats in Lake St. Clair, and we had a great fun event with band and barbecue and all kinds of stuff, and we had amazing sponsors. Jason Coletta was a sponsor for that. Uh, same with Drew Maltese, who are going to be coming up and speaking. Uh, we also uh, do happy hour mixers every quarter as well. So if you want to come out and uh, loosen up after work and have some drinks and, and do some networking. And that's, if you guys want to find more information on that, it's on Michigan Real Estate Masterminds on your Facebook and LinkedIn. That's the best way to find it. Michigan Real Estate Masterminds. So I want to move forward and bring up the sponsors. Sponsors come up. I want to give you some, some time to... Uh, Fill us in and educate us on what you do, what you offer, and give them give them a couple minutes of your time because they've been so gracious to help us put this on. Jason Coletta, come on. Drew Maltese. Ryan Marchand. Luke Sasek. David Brooks. Okay. Yeah, that's okay, though. We're here because we're good at real estate, not getting in alphabetical order. Right. So come on up, guys, and educate us on, on what you do, what you offer. And, again, thanks, guys, for what you've done for us. I don't think I was supposed to go first, but no one else was coming up, so... My name is Luke Sasek. I work with Cutco Closing Gifts. And I'm sure many of you have heard of our company before. Cutco has been around since the 1940s. And 10 years ago, we came out with a special program just for real estate agents. So in the last 10 years, we've grown to become the largest closing gift company in North America. We now do this for over 40,000 loan officers and real estate agents throughout the United States and Canada. And I'm sure most of you are giving a gift of some sort in your business. A lot of business owners that I talk to, they give a bottle of wine or a gift basket or a gift card to Lowe's or Home Depot. I've heard of people giving plants and welcome mats. And I even heard one lady who gave a puppy as a closing gift. <laughs> and I'm not suggesting that, nor am I here to tell you that what you're giving away in your business is bad or that it's wrong. The bottom line is that your clients will like any gift that they received from their real estate agent or their loan officer because they're not expecting it and they're getting a gift for free. I want to invite you today to think about what's happening to that gift after you've given it to your client. In most cases, we find the answer is that it's consumed right away. So your client eats it, they drink it, they spend it or it dies. I was talking about the plant, not the puppy. <laughs> and then in either, in either case, there's no daily reminder of who the realtor is for your client over the next 5, 10, 15 years. So at Cutco, what we do is we offer you a way to not only give your client a gift that they'll love and use every single day, we also turn that into an opportunity for you as a business owner to brand your business and increase your client retention in your local market. So 
If you have not heard of Cutco before, it's the Rolex, the Rolls-Royce, the Snap-on tools, the Detroit Athletic Club of the kitchen. It's super high quality. It's American-made, guaranteed forever. We do free sharpening. And our closing gifts division, that's the division that I work with, we take your information, your company logo, your name, your cell phone number, we engrave that on the blade of our products for you to give away as a, as a gift in your business. And it does a couple of things. First thing is it helps you stay top of mind with your, with your clients. I was a speaker at the Explode Conference in Novi this past June. I know some of you were there. And one of the other speakers that was from Texas mentioned that 87% of the population, when surveyed, said that they definitely would or probably would use their same realtor after, a tra- after the transaction was over. Only 17% do. And Brian Buffini, he's one of the top real estate trainers in North America. He says 80% of the population can't remember their realtor's name two years after the transaction. We make that impossible because your client is using a piece of cutlery with your name on it every single day in their kitchen. They'll never forget your name. They always have your cell phone number right in front of them. Most, most agents, some agents aren't familiar with the tax laws when it comes to what you can write off on your closing gifts. And the IRS limits you to $25 per gift on what you can write off on your taxes. Now, most agents spend more than that, and they cross their fingers. They hope they don't get audited, or they just write off the $25, and they don't really take that full deduction they deserve. So since your information, your marketing information is engraved on the product, it's 100% legally tax deductible as marketing or advertising. You can talk with your CPA on the details, how that works out. It will hold up in an audit every time. This is also a really easy system to put in place for your business. I was talking with Sally from Remax earlier before the meeting, and she said that she spent so much time trying to put together a gift for each client. It's a lot more efficient when you can place an order and have gifts on hand that are ready to give out. They already have your information, so all you have to do is grab it and go. You don't have to think about it. You don't waste any time, money, or energy shopping for your clients. And then the last thing is the longevity. When it comes to closing gifts, you want to get your clients something that's going to be useful and something that's going to last a long time. There's no other client retention system you can put in place that puts your name in front of your clients every single day the whole year. That's thousands of touches if you add that up over 5, 10, 15 years when all you did was give one gift. So the prices range from $85 to start for the single knives, and we have gift sets with two pieces in them that range from $150 to $250. We have luxury sets, like a full set of knives, a wooden block with your name on it, on your kitchen, on the kitchen counter of your customer, and those start at $400 and, and go up from there. We engrave your name, your logo, your cell phone number on it. The whole process takes about two to three weeks. Once you place an order, we deliver it to your office and Our minimum order is five gifts. Many agents will elect to split up those payments over five months interest-free. We can charge your credit card, and you get everything delivered up front. So that's all the time I have. I'm going to just come around, and if everybody can get out a business card for me, or there's a $1 bill in your envelope, if you don't have a business card, I'd be glad to take that and just (laughs) jot your name and, and number on it. Don't give him your dollar, that's for you.
So if you, if you would like to place an order, if you want me to follow up with you, I'm just going to come around to each table. So if everybody can just grab out your business cards for me right now and then drop that in the lid as I come around to your table. And I will be happy to follow up with each and every one of you after the meeting. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Keith, for inviting me. And I look forward to, to working with many of you after the meeting. Thank you. Wow, what a beautiful venue we have today. First of all, before we go any farther, I really have to thank Keith Stonehouse. This would not be possible without him. Everybody needs to give this man a round of applause. Thank you, Keith. And for doing me a solid and moving that shared post over to the, uh, to the event. That was pretty solid. That was groovy. That was groovy, right. Well, I'm not a funny guy, but uh, in case you're not aware, there's a no denim policy here at the club. Uh, which is why I'm wearing these sporty pants that I do not own. Uh, yeah, so don't make that mistake like I did. Um, there's an envelope in front of every one of you. If, you're, if you don't have an envelope, raise your hand or come yell at me in the back because I clearly didn't do my job. That envelope's got a gift in there for you, and it might seem kind of cheesy to give you a referral fee of $1, but the point is I've already invested in my relationship with every person in this room. And my goal is for you to do the same with me. Every single person. Take a moment at some point today. Maybe it's after we get done eating and having our, our, our networking. I'll hang around for a few minutes. Come and take a look at my display. And let's talk about what you're doing in your business. How are you generating new business? What's your favorite part about being in real estate? These are the type of things I love to hear from people. Every single person in this room is going to have a different answer. And friends, that's one of the most beautiful parts of this business and it's emblematic by the room warden. If you look up at the ceiling, look at the level of detail and the beautiful masterpiece, even in the chandelier and in the ceiling, I don't know if you'd call it tiles or just the design, the architecture. I mean, this is a historic building. And if we think about the impact that we have on our clients, whether it's getting their first apartment, buying their first house, uh, leasing a space out to someone, or helping them with an investment decision, Every one of those decisions requires unique approach. And every one of us in this room is an expert in one field or another. One of the things I like to tell people, and I'll just keep it short and sweet, I ask folks, I say, when was the last time you went and saw your brain surgeon? Almost everybody says no, except for most of my friends, obviously, because I wear pants like this. <laughs> so when I ask those folks that question, they look at me quizzically. And some of those folks work in real estate, and they wonder why I ask. And I say, when was the last time you had heart surgery done from your brain surgeon? And they say, well, never. I said, would you consider having your brain surgeon consider doing heart surgery on you? And they said, no. I said, well, what would you do? They said, well, I've gotten a referral, of course. Now, I have a question for everyone in this room. When it comes to our health, which many of us value very highly because it cannot be replaced, and our time, the two most important things in life. Why is it that people are so quick to immediately go to a referral when it comes to the medical industry, but they're afraid to give up a piece of business in the form of a referral to another specialist? I just want you to think about that for a moment. I'm not going to give you an answer right now, but I think what you'll find is this room is full of real estate brain surgeons, heart surgeons, 
people who wear funny pants, and all other sorts. And we're all specialists. Remember that. Thank you. Hi, everyone. My name is Jason Coletta, Home Point Financial. Again, thanks to Keith for putting all this together. Um, I always appreciate you including me in, the, in these things. Um, keep it re- real quick. Um, sitting right over here at my tables, my, my table setups here. Um, anything I can do for any of your clients, realtor, if you're looking to purchase a home, if you're looking, uh, if you have a friend that's buying a home, whatever the case may be, um, I have every program possible. Um, uh, long story short, uh, I've been doing this uh, almost 13, about 13 and a half years. Yeah, March will be four, about 14 years. Um, I've been in it through the high. I, I never left the high. And I was speaking to somebody earlier. Um, our, our rough years, 07, 08, I, I stayed in it. And I learned a lot those uh, few years on how to keep pushing forward and, and, and just uh, keep on keeping on, as uh, they say. Um, but again, I, I'll keep it short and sweet. Um, I'm sitting right here. My table's here. You're going to want to get me early because eventually I'm going to start making my way back to that table area back there. Uh, but <laughs> any questions, uh, give me a call. Um, grab a card, grab a folder, some information in there. And again, thanks for having me. We're good. Thank you, Jason. Uh, everybody, please put your hands together because this would not be possible without Keith and David. Both of them have put this on couple times now, and it's been fantastic. So I, I'm going to be brief. I want to tell, tell you three different things, um, how I can help, um, a little bit of our history, and then the people in the room that can help you. Um, so my name is Drew Maltese, DJ Maltese Construction. Uh, I help building owners who are frustrated with their current building layout. Either it's not productive or they can't get what they want out of it. And what I do is I come in and I talk with them, and I help them ease the anxiety and figure out what can we do with this building to make it work for us, what's affordable, what's right, or do we need a new location or a new building. So by doing that, I can help them ease all their frustration, help the anxiety, and their concerns. I've been in this business now 22 years. I'm in the building industry. It's a family business for 70 years now. Um... We have restored such buildings. We brought back to life Orchestra Hall, the Whitney, the Inns on Ferry Street, all very architecturally detailed in history. The plaster ceilings, these are all handcrafted. My uncle still does this. These are all hand-molded, hand-paint-brushed plaster. Um, this, this is a very unique room in this building, um, and it is a historic building. Um, we love buildings. We have a passion for creating things to last forever. Um, If you've been in Orchestra Hall, it still has the fine details on the ceiling. Everything is still what we did many years ago. We're actually getting ready to redo the stage right now because it's lasted over 30 years. Um, Done many projects around town and uh, I'm looking to do many more. I have a life goal. Last time I was here I mentioned my life goal is to build a skyscraper on Jefferson. There's many locations left right along Jefferson. So if you have that opportunity, I'm looking for it. In the next 20 years, it will happen. Um, We have many commercial realtors and other realtors in the room. Uh, The the thing I really wanted to discuss was I had a story yesterday about a guy who wanted to build a building. And he doesn't know if he wants to rent it out now, use it for his personal use, or make it so it can be a horse stable or a, a barn later. And I told him, I said, you can design it so you can use it any of those ways, but you just have to have it in place. Uh, He's in a rural area, so he needs a septic system, so it changed his whole dynamics. Um, 
He's got a huge plantation, many commercial buildings. So I told him, well, you're going to have to add a whole new system, and he didn't want to do that. And it, it changed the way he thought about building this building. So I told him, well, let's sit down and we'll discuss the process. And he had an order in mind of the process. Well, the process it was design, city, building, financing. And I said, you got the process backwards because without the financing, you're wasting your time and everybody else's time that you just got involved in the project. So if you're looking for financing, call Jason. Um, he's here in the room to help you. See if you can afford it. Um, and then if you're looking for property or a building, you're going to call David Brooks because he's the guy in the room that's going to help you find that. There's many other of you in the room. I, I do apologize for not announcing you, but these are the guys that put this on, and I'm kind of proud to be working with them. Um, Keith Stonehouse, Franklin Title, best title company around. I would definitely use them. So um, Cutco Knives, I've known Luke for over a year now, and he has been passing stuff out at every mastermind. He's doing great. So if you need that closing gift, he's got it. And I'm sorry, Mark, I don't know your commercial real estate, I'm assuming. Is that what your referral is? Yes. So um, all of us in the room, though, are willing to help you. Um, we're all here working for Masterminds, for Keith, for Detroit, for Michigan. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about that. Uh, if you guys have any questions, I pass out a few flyers and some cards. And um, thank you for your time. Drew Maltese, after the dust settles, all that remains is the quality. I appreciate the announcement for Franklin Title Agency, since I didn't do that originally. And we will just leave it at that. <laughs> All right. Uh, so next, we want to move on to our keynote speaker. But before we bring up the keynote speaker, David Brooks with Keller Williams Commercial. Everyone, David Brooks. Now, last year, David, David approached me. He, he's been a keynote speaker at the Masterminds uh, last year. Yeah? Earlier this year. And he approached me and said, and Nev did too, Nev as well, came to me and said, we should do something in Detroit. And I said, that sounds great. What do you think? And David said, well, I'm a member of the DAC. And I said, well, I'm not. And he said, well, I can get you in. I said, let's do it. So this is what it's evolved to. And David has been probably the best partner I've had in putting anything together. I've, I've hosted many groups, many events throughout the years. Uh, many things like this that were other industry specific and David has just been, it's been seamless. So hopefully you guys feel that it's been seamless as well. And uh, let's put our hands together again for David Brooks. Thanks, Keith. Keith has uh, some official pants that we have for him too when he shows up at the club anyway. <laughs> but anyway, um, we're going to deviate a little bit uh, from the agenda. Uh, and Dan Carmody, I know that uh, that's the reason why you're here. Uh, Dan is the president of Eastern Market. So if you have the opportunity at your respective tables, uh, there are uh, sponsors uh, there. Uh, get the opportunity to meet everyone. And then if you could also pass cards around and uh, just create a networking opportunity. Uh, normally we try to do a speed networking group, but I want to give as much time uh, to, uh, to Dan as possible. So Dan is the president of Eastern Market Corporation. He is um, over in charge of the oldest continuously uh, operated public market in the United States, approximately 40,000 and, and, and climbing per weekend. That's how many visitors uh, come to the market. Uh, what he's going to share today is his 2025 vision, and this is how we can all chime in and really be a part of what's happening. 
uh, and in his vision, uh, he's going to share uh, multiple things about what's happening with Shed 4, uh, the 60,000, uh, the, the, the units, the 60 units that they're uh, adding to it, um, as well as a lot of commercial and uh, retail and wholesale um, uh, space as well. So uh, without further ado, I have uh, Dan Carmody. It's a pleasure to be here today. I talk loud, I talk fast, I show pretty pictures. It is my vision though, uh, this is the work of more than 600 stakeholders that participated in a strategic planning process that started about uh, a little more than a year ago and ended up the first of this year. And today I'm tag teaming with Yella Ellison who uh, helped quarterback that planning process. And she is also slated uh, as of about 1.30 today, when we formally adopt uh, the bylaws, the Articles of Incorporation, and appoint the first board, the head of our Eastern Market Development Corporation, a community-based property development subsidiary that will work alongside with Eastern Market Corporation, which is a nonprofit that um, has really four principal missions. We oversee the markets on a daily basis. And for those of you not familiar with the Eastern Market, we're a little bit of an outlier. A lot of people close their eyes and think about urban public markets. They think of maybe more like West Side Market in Cleveland, which happens to be my second favorite market that is an Eastern Market. It has a hundred or so permanent vendors that are open seven days a week. We have over 500 vendors, and they're all transient. They set up, they sell, they tear down, they leave. They come Monday through Friday, midnight to 5 a.m. to serve a wholesale market. They come on Tuesdays between the months of May, uh, excuse me, June and September and around the holiday season to serve a smaller segment of the crowd that we combine with health and wellness activities. They come on Saturday all year, uh, as many as 225 vendors on any one particular Saturday this time of year, attracting anywhere from 10,000 people in the dead of winter to 80,000 people on Flower Day weekend. And they come on Sundays. Uh, 200 or so of them selling merchandise, not food. They come on Sundays from, again, June through September. So we're a big market, 165,000 square feet, five principal buildings. Um, but we also are a neighborhood, 150 food businesses that we serve. We're an economic developer for that. And then two other missions are actually to work regionally to help address food access issues, making it easier for people to source good food on a daily basis. And lastly, we work to strengthen food as an economic cluster in the Detroit economy. We've been doing this. The market's been there 125 years. We're celebrating our 125th anniversary this year. And it's really amazing to think about. That is. We are pretty much the last one standing with any Relevance with regard to both wholesale and retail markets of our kind in the country. Um, think about our peers. You think about local food districts in Chicago, where I'm from, the Fulton Street area. You think about Lower Manhattan and the Meatpacking District. Both of those places used to be like Eastern Market. And you people, you real estate people, ruined it for everybody. <laughs> those bars, those boutiques, those lofts outbid food businesses for that space, and they couldn't compete. And when they left, they scattered to the wind. And all of those cities now, and ironically, 
In the Bureau of Brooklyn, the food sector is currently the largest employer. So our world of food is changing underneath our feet daily. We don't recognize it very much, I think. We see it more in the world of beer, which is a great metaphor for what's happening in food and spirits and wine. You know, in 1985, there were 103 brewing companies. Today, there's 4,000 going towards about 4,500 that are in permitting and processing. There was 0% market share for craft beers. Today, it's approaching 20%. All of that change happened because consumers drove it with their wallets. It was a change steady and pretty persistent. And my favorite sporting event is not the Super Bowl. My favorite sporting event in America is the week after the Super Bowl, where the marketing team from Budweiser sits down with their advertising consultants, and they analyze the latest Clydesdale ad, which broke our hearts, but didn't change our buying patterns. And it gives me great faith that there is hope for the future of this country. But we've been there since 1891, and it is worth a huge round of applause because we've survived changes in food systems and changes in Detroit that have been uh, pretty much a roller coaster ride. And uh, when you think about the DNA that made us what we are, it still makes us who we are today. Number one, we're about food. And number two, we're about a portal into the American economy, typically by those who don't have a very good running start at it, particularly immigrants and vulnerable populations. So if you would ask me the most wonderful thing about leading the nonprofit over the last nine years, among them would be hearing the stories of tales like people, your fellow, the late, great um, Al Taubman, who has a wonderful Eastern market story to tell about being a student at the University of Michigan and getting up at midnight and meeting with his cohorts who had been to the fraternity houses and the sorority houses, and they placed corsage orders that he got in his car at midnight and drove to Eastern market to get the wholesale flowers and brought them back, and they assembled them in the dark of night. And then in the morning, the bikes went back to the fraternity and sorority houses with their little bit of value added, the corsage wrapped from wholesale flowers bought at Eastern Market. Uh, Sheldon Yellen, the largest property restoration firm in the world, remembers fondly selling apples for his aunt and making 18 cents an hour at the Eastern Market. So countless immigrants off the plane, off the boat, have come to Eastern Market, and family fortunes have been born from there, and that's a tradition we try to keep alive today. Um, We're also a place where people come together across the lines that typically separate us, whether it's race, age, income, or generation, and I would argue that in Metro Detroit, we don't have enough of those kind of places. That's a pretty important value. And in fact, when you think about 40,000 people coming there this time of year, with 80% of them coming from the suburbs, you can make an argument that Detroit doesn't have necessarily the best grocery stores in the country, that people might go there out of need. But those suburbanites, Metro Detroit, in my mind, has, and, I, and, and, and the evidence shows, has probably the deepest, richest group of independent grocers in the United States. I grew up in Chicago, and there wasn't Joe's Protos and Nino Savaggio's and Papa Joe's, and on and on and on. And I like to think our wholesale market is still there because those stores have a... uh, We're we're still there because we have customers that buy from regional farmers from Michigan, Ohio, and Ontario. But I was corrected at a Chaldean Chamber of Commerce because, in part, the reason those stores are there is because they have an independent source of fruits and vegetables. So the symbiotic relationship between great grocery stores and having a strong independent wholesale source of fresh fruits and vegetables cannot be understated. But my point is that on a Saturday, those suburban customers come to Eastern Market not out of need, but out of choice. 
because they're driving past those great suburban grocery stores to come to Easter Market to get what they can't get at a grocery store, which is a destination you might want to take not just yourself, but your children and your grandchildren and pass those stories on generation to generation. So we're a place about uh, both place-based economic development, this neighborhood, this district, but we're also cluster-based in the sense that we are focused on food as an economic driver for the city, for the state, for the region. And I would argue that food is often given short shrift. It's not noticed. It's taken for granted. Nobody gives a shit, in particularly economic development officials and elected leaders. I can tell you that business leaders in Michigan that wrote the manifesto that Governor Snyder adopted to make this a more favorable business climate, followed that up with Manifesto 2, where those proud manufacturers, so happy to be back at the table, forgot to mention in this 52-page of document the state's second largest economy, that would be food and agriculture. And so over the last five years, we've been working hard to get food established as bona fide economic development. The, the governor actually gets it. Um, we got food onto the Mackinac Policy Conference last year when Whole Foods Chairman uh, Walter Robb spoke. And next Monday, Crane's Detroit Business is hosting its first ever food summit at Eastern Market, where we uh, are doing a pitch session in the morning and have about 400 attendees coming in the afternoon. So food is emerging as a pretty much a new economy industry because of this great change that's happening below what we see. People are paying attention to what they eat more, and it's changing what we, what we buy, just like in the world of beer. I happen to sit on a national task force called Good Food by the Numbers. It's paired with a Chicago-based consumer research firm called Spins. And Spins measures anything in a grocery store on a barcode that's related to health and nutrition and organic, gluten-free, cage-free, GMO-free, 90 different variables that we have invented over the last 10 years to describe food that's healthier than not. Each one of their growth charts are nearly a straight line vertical growth. That is resulting in big companies like Kraft and Heinz not being big enough to please shareholders. They're merging to equate shareholder value. It's been Garden Fresh being bought up, a local food company being bought up by Campbell's because their soup sales are plummeting so fast, the only way they can keep growing is buying uh, successful startup and emerging companies. So we are changing what we eat. We're trying, we are focusing on more healthy food, although most of us are so confused about what's healthy these days, it, it makes it a very <laughs> difficult challenge. But that's opportunity for a regional-scaled approach. Now, in the world of about 2010, the choir started to get louder that big food was not serving as well. And so I like to point out at times like this, split the room in half, you guys are big food, commodity-based food, factory agriculture. You have 97% market share. Those of you on the other side are like me. You're with organic, sustainable agriculture, regional-based food systems, and we have 97% self-righteousness. Well, Easter Market is that where they two come together because last time I checked, you can't eat self-righteousness. So if we're going to fix the system, we got to fix it while we continue to eat. And so big meat, small at Easter Market. Uh, urban agriculture is a term I despise, mostly invented by urban planners or promoted by urban planners who see Detroit as a role model for the rest of the world. It's kind of fed by a Mel Gibson, Mad Maxian, future dystopian New World Order. Tear down your perfectly good neighborhoods and skyscrapers and build, build space for crops. First of all, it belies the fact that Hong Kong and Shanghai get about 30 to 40% of their eggs and vegetables from within the city limits. And number two, 
Um, it really doesn't address systems change. Urban agriculture is just one form of production, a pretty small one at that. But we got to be worried about processing and distribution and retailing and recycling, and that's where the jobs are. That's what interests us. So while I say it's, it, doesn't, it shouldn't define the systems change that's needed, where we need to have successful scale at small, medium, and large, not just at large, that's where we get the diversity that nature likes. Because, you know, I don't know about you, but... There hasn't been a horror movie that scared me in a long time. They usually go over some point where it becomes comedy. You know, like the line with um, Jack Nicholson where here's Johnny. You know, that was a breathtakingly scary movie until that line, you know. But what is breathtakingly scary to me is if you go to your local Meyer store at midnight, the day before the next storm of the century, have you ever done that? Has anyone ever done that? What What did you see there? Not a damn thing. Because big food's so good at just-in-time inventory, that, ta- that takes profit out of And nature doesn't like, you know, in New Orleans and Louisiana right now, when you don't have redundancy and you have just-in-time delivery systems, you better fix that system quick or people are going to start to not do very well with food. So while urban agriculture is important in Detroit and is profound in Detroit for three reasons. Number one, 1,500 formal community gardens participate in a program called Keep Growing Detroit. That involves the participation of 20,000 Detroiters. Now, that's 20,000 people working to make their neighborhoods better without much help from anybody else, and 20,000 people who are pulling a carrot out of the ground beginning to think that might be more normal than the Twinkie from their local convenience store. And that is how you change people to eat a better diet through that experience. And so that's profound. The largest 60 or 7 come to Easter Market. They sell $100,000 worth of food, pretty much a blemish on the total sales. I mean, a a pimple on the total sales of the market, but profoundly important movement to get that kind of participation by Detroiters. Now, if we could do like craft beer, if we could move that market share from 97% down to 80% and local share up from 3% to 20%, based on Detroit's population, you, you build about 5,000 jobs and you create about $125 million worth of household income. We think that's important. Now, we also think the food industry is really important, particularly the processing distribution, and manufacturing. And we have lost businesses over the last 20 years, particularly the late 90s to the early aughts, and it's recovered a little bit since 2008. If we achieve what every other uh, metropolitan area has in the country over the next five years, we create about 7,000 jobs, and if we do a little bit better than that at the natural rate of growth, we can create just shy of 9,000 jobs. So our strategy plan is really about how do we leverage Eastern Market to create that kind of growth in the food business? Now, we have seen about $17 million that we've raised and invested in market structures to make the market more attractive, compelling, and appealing, and we're proud of that. But again, um, we're also this place-based, making sure that this market stays a place. The second great attribute besides being a working food district is by being that place where everybody's welcome. We have to maintain that. We were actually regarded by MIT as one of the 15 most iconic public spaces in North America at a time before we built this plaza area in front of Shed 5 where you couldn't sit down and enjoy yourself. So to be a great public space without having a place to enjoy yourself really gets to the point of the economic democracy where the banker or the street person can be the vendor or the buyer at a table. And that's what makes us who we are. So we've got some support from the Michigan Realtors. They're actually helping us with some streetscape work that you is leading up for us this year. We're trying to get people more involved in the neighborhood. 
Um, those merchants around the market um, are still challenged a little bit by our traffic flow, which is pretty good this time of year on Tuesday. It's great on Saturday, but it can be kind of dicey in between. So we have done a lot of work trying to incent the growth of food uh, manufacturers. Our star pupils are probably McClure Brothers, Bob and Joe. Started packing Grandpa's pickles recipe on Mom and Dad's back porch in Troy about eight years ago. They're currently at a former auto parts manufacturer facility north of the market. They and their 30 employees now pack pickles for sale in every state and province in North America and eight foreign countries. The 300 entrepreneurs we're working with include a whole wide range. If 5% of them aspire to be the McClure brothers, that would be great. Many of them are hobby business, business, businesses like the Loves Custard Pies. They started out in life trying to devote their retirement savings to a frozen custard stand on the city's west side. wasn't going very well. They started taking their grandparents' custard pie recipe and bringing it to market. Now they have a business contributing to the retirement account, not deleting from it. So we service all these clients trying to maximize the number of jobs we can create, have some future projects coming on to accelerate the growth of those like McClure's that are growing fast. The Sunday market has been dedicated to the sale of non-food merchandise inspired by a trip that the Kresge Foundation sent us to in a time when Chrysler and Fiat merged when we went to Torino, Italy, where we found that 50% of the clothes in Torino were sold at their public markets. And when you stop to think about what the Italians are good at, which is a number of things, but the underground, informal, or gray economy rises to the top. They're really good at that. Now, what's happened in the United States since 2008? The informal, gray, or underground economy has been growing much faster than the formal economy. And what happened in Detroit in 1980? it went through what the country went through in 2008. So the unemployment rate of Detroit neighborhoods, which we don't know because we can't measure the people who have quit looking for work, is significant. But the number of quality products that come out of Detroit's neighborhoods are huge. And the Sunday market has 200 vendors, of which almost 70% are city of Detroit residents. So our goal is to create a market for them. So there's been investment in the market district. In addition to ours, the retailers have fixed up. We've added baristas and all those cool, funky spaces. We've added lofts. It's all great. But our job is to make sure the district stays safe for pallets and trucks. And so how do we do that? For example, we have a wholesale market that operates out of our market facilities. And one of the things that's happened since we've made these investments in them, the use of those facilities for other people's events, weddings, bar mitzvahs, GM product launches, has exploded. But each of those events, plus our wholesale market, can bring contaminants into the space that you can't control if you're in a wholesale environment. And so we know with increasingly stringent food safety laws, within five years, we have to build a dedicated, we can't use that shed for a party on Thursday and for food on Thursday night. Neither can the Detroit Produce Terminal survive much longer in its 1925 facility just because bringing it up to code is so expensive and you're still left with 1925 logistics and heating efficiencies. So we need to do, like many of the European communities, this one also in Torino, is a dedicated wholesale terminal, and that's one of those facilities we want to see in the growth area of the market. Now, as we create, the, the, the focus of the plan is quite simple. Grow the market into the expanded and expand it into the vacant areas to the east and to the north of the market. Create new space for 1,500 jobs that want to stay in the eastern market. Companies like Robles and Wolverine that are growing and adding jobs. And then take the existing district and make it a much more interesting urban mixed-use area with even a wider number of uses than we have then. If we can expand the district nearby and call this larger area Easter Market, then it would be okay to follow in the footsteps of the meatpacking district or the Fulton Market area and encourage 
a wider mix of uses. But the danger there is to make sure that we guide the creation of those new uses in a way that doesn't exclude people, that we don't end up with just white tablecloth restaurants and we don't end up with just sexy food stores. Burt's is a great example of a legacy business that has helped make Eastern Market what it is. It's been threatened by the real estate bubble, but so far it's just the real estate bubble. It sold for 1.9, 2.2, and 2.4 million to out-of-town investors who came here, did the due diligence, and then surrendered their $15,000 auction check. The numbers just didn't work. So Bert's still safe. Safe from everybody but himself, because this outdoor cafe is great until he pushed out far enough that customers stood in live traffic lines to order ribs. We've worked with Bert's to buy some buffering so that people are contained, and this great outdoor facility can, was brought back to life this year. I used to never think about a Metro PCS store as something that I wanted in my district, because I usually worked in smaller downtown areas that had no traffic. Well, the Metro PCS store is a great parable for making sure our tenant mix does not exclude the low and moderate income neighbors of residents of the neighborhoods around Eastern Market. They need dry cleaners, they need barber shops, they need a Metro PCS store, they need a dollar store. There's room for that and room for white tablecloth restaurants and foodie places. Our job as a not-for-profit is to help make that happen, to work with you all to make sure the tenant mix reflects the community's needs not just the top dollar. Um, housing in the market is coming. This is a Shed 4 project that's tied up into uh, the city's choice neighborhood application. And we want to be leaders of how to do mixed income housing right. We project 40% affordable, 60% market rate housing on this project. Mirroring projects I've had the privilege of doing in Illinois and Iowa in my past. And the secret to the successful projects with 40% affordable, 60% mix in most neighborhoods, is making sure it looks like market-rate housing so everybody feels welcome. And if you can compete for the market-rate tenant, then it's pretty sure you're going to get affordable tenants to fill in there as well. And there are many government programs that can help provide the financing to make that feasible and, and successful. Um, that's my time limit. I'm going to finish in one minute and invite Yella up so that we can have a little questions and answers before she finishes off. So our goal is to make sure that this is 40% affordable, 60% market rate, and with an even higher design characteristic. It can't look like housing much at all. It has to look like a market structure with housing in it rather than a housing structure with market space in it. The first floor of this will be our shed four. The second floor will be some office and commercial space. The top three floors will be somewhere between 48 and 60 units of workforce housing. This is another mixed-income project proposed for the north end of Russell Street, I don't know if you're familiar with the Wasserman Galleries project, but that's their sculptural element there. So we need your help in really trying to let people in Detroit sometimes understand what real property values are. There is a bubble. Here are two examples. This property is under contract for $1.2 million. An experienced market developer who's built space out and leasing it for $17 a square foot, which is kind of the high end of the first floor commercial space is actually renovating crappy old buildings at $60 a square foot because he's got a network of low-cost providers that do good work. He can't make this number work. So it's somewhere south of there. And we want people to begin to think about working backward from realistic projections about what you can get for rent, what it's going to cost to put the space together, what's a normal rate of return that someone that's not crazy would want to do a project to get to a sale price that has some merit. There's another project, you know, this was all, all of these values were based on the auction of birds that happened three times where the transaction never sold. 
Um, I had another one in there. We don't need it. You get the point. We need your help in trying to make sure as people list properties that they go through the exercise of trying to really get beyond what they read in the paper to what a real value is. Because it's just going to stop things in Detroit. And there's a lot of evidence that that's happening. The arts are important. We have a second annual mural festival coming up. Uh, And if you haven't been there, uh, Eastern Market After Dark on Thursday, 22nd September is one of the best smallish events in, in Metro Detroit every year. It's a celebration of the arts. The American Institute of Architects has its annual awards banquet. The Detroit Design Collaborative has a number of events. And all the art galleries and cool space in the district open up for that night. So encourage you to come. If you haven't seen it, also another great participatory thing is riding your bike through the Quinter Cut to Eastern Market. Phase 2 opened up in the spring, connecting it to the riverfront and connecting it to Wayne State's campus. And there's a huge opportunity along the Quinter Cut to create a really wonderful live-work neighborhood over the next 10 years, transitioning current and vacant food businesses that really are not equipped to be food business space in the future, and they will uh, uh, make great live-work space. Yo, you want to come up? I'll be ha- I have to leave to go to a board meeting, and I'll be happy to take the question too. Yellow is going to describe to you our vision for how we would expand Eastern Market to the north and to the east in a way that we think is cutting edge. We call it the Food Innovation Zone. So while she's coming up, I'll uh, be happy to take a question or two if you have any. Back there, I'm also leaving you down, so I have to come to you. You're, you're describing a situation where a conventional transaction or investment may not hold that for someone scratching everything. But how are you going to be the long-term infrastructure or smaller buildings that will eventually make going to despair if they don't get that investment? How is that going to be addressed? Well, I mean, I think at some point, the roadblock right now is unrealistic sales and properties that need a lot of investment. And so, Eventually, people get tired of waiting and they use the price and then, then once that's unlocked, then that may mean that property is going to sit ugly and under the for a while. Quite frankly, from our perspective, that may be better than a case of those that's been so fast and you lose control of the character of the neighborhood. We want to, and we will bring to the table where we can financial resources to help stretch the project financial feasibility. We just don't want to do it the way that the worst people are holding on to property prices for long So it is it's a bit of a gap. I can tell you that a similar case in Midtown, where Midtown Inc. had acquired a whole block and there were two health jobs, they paid a premium at the end of that process, they didn't pay that premium at the beginning of the process. And I think that's you gotta be strategic in when you want to pay that premium. Okay. Do you want me to answer your question so he can make it to our board of directors meeting? Go ahead, sir. I'm just curious, is there, is there room for or are there plans for any type of shuttle system within the area? Parking is interesting at times. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to kind of get more people in and out, in a little easier way. Uh, we do have, uh, we actually just received a grant uh, from the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan for $75,000 for a shuttle service, but that's aimed at seniors. Um, seniors who might live really close to Eastern Market, but it might be difficult for them to make it there, especially on Tuesday Market during the week. 
uh, and then throughout the city of Detroit as well, not just in the proximity. Um, the image that you see was part of Eastern Market 2025, our 10-year economic development strategy that Dan mentioned. And this strategy, among other things, did consider uh, improvements to the parking system. So what you, the handout you're holding, that's a 12-page executive summary. Uh, however, on our website, we have the full 200-page document, and it does discuss perhaps designating Ryopel Street as the parking spine and organizing parking in a little bit more predictable manner. Uh, you might not notice, but there's a 330-space parking garage right in the middle of Eastern Market that is owned by the city of Detroit. Uh, about a year ago, we gained control of this, and we make it available for free. However, the garage was built in 1980s, so it is not the most welcoming structure. It's dark. It has really low ceilings. But in case uh, any of you were ever wondering, can I park there? Who parks there? Any of our customers, and it's free. Uh, so the, the difficulty with having a parking solution to the Saturday crowd is that the weekday crowd typically is semi-trucks and wholesalers and the food businesses, the, the part of it that makes us this wholesale working food hub and the solutions that apply to the more uh, retail-focused customers on Saturday don't always work during the week. But I, I do hear a lot. My previous work before I moved to Detroit from Los Angeles was in parking strategies and I could talk to you about it for days. <laughs> so yeah, I love parking. <laughs> so <laughs> as much as food, you know, and farmer's markets. <laughs> So in case you're wondering why, are, why is Dan talking to you about economic development, why am I talking to you about uh, you know, parking and urban planning, um, the Eastern Market Corporation staff has uh, 18 full-time people on it. Two-thirds of them manage the market and the market district. The other third is more along the lines of economic development, long-term, uh, long-range planning, and uh, food access and food entrepreneurship. So we kind of build upon this really rich base that, that the people who manage the market already create for us. So the image that you see is from the Eastern Market 2025. This is a rendering. This is conceptual. This is not really how things are going to look. Um, in case you're wondering what the angle is, is looking down Gresham towards downtown. But it's the representation of Dan, what Dan was mentioning. In order for us to remain authentic, we know that the wholesale function of Eastern Market is threatened by Food Safety Modernization Act, uh, federal law that will require a much more intense uh, standards for refrigeration, for tracking of food origins and sources, things that, you know, Eastern Market still does in the 19th century mode, not necessarily the 21st century. And But it will make a lot of businesses, a lot of buildings where business is happening obsolete. So, as we said, in order not to lose our heart and soul, how do we get ahead of this trend and make sure that those food businesses don't disperse throughout the metropolitan area, but that stay where we are, uh, to, to continue you know, uh, utilizing the economies of scale and opportunities for mentorship and, and added procurement opportunities between those businesses. So we are working with a number of partners, City of Detroit, Mayor's Office, Planning and Development, DEGC, uh, and others, uh, Detroit Land Bank, on uh, analyzing the feasibility of acquiring and assembling um, meaningful development sites, we are talking about 10-acre sites, to accommodate uh, relocation and expansion of existing businesses. 
we have estimated that about 850 jobs would be preserved, and we could grow this to by additional 2,000 jobs. Uh, that would be in the food processing, manufacturing, distribution, and wholesaling industries uh, that could accommodate a lot of entry-level jobs. Um, a lot of people in the city of Detroit are concerned about housing. Uh, we keep scratching our heads thinking, where are these people going to work? We're building a lot of housing, but um, the jobs are equally important, especially ones located so near downtown. Uh, all the a lot majority of the bus routes in the DDOT system ends up coming downtown. So if you're talking about connecting a city that has 24% uh, of population without a private vehicle, uh, placing jobs in areas that are easily accessible by public transportation is one of the win solutions. I've not seen this presentation, so this is kind of going to be a surprise for me, what Dan put in there. <laughs> so um, everybody talks these days about stormwater infrastructures. What is stormwater infrastructure? Why is it important? And so on. I'm sure that I don't need to preach to this crowd. But the way we perceive stormwater infrastructure is not only as something to do out of a environmental stewardship uh, kind of place in your heart, but also as an economic development incentive. Um, uh, there is a possibility to, if you build a stormwater management infrastructure that goes above and beyond of what is required, and you actually retain most of the stormwater runoff on site and mitigate it on site, um, there is an opportunity to achieve reduction in your stormwater runoff fees with Department of Water and Sewer. So if we are doing a massive 200-acre light industrial development, we cannot only build in uh, these these mechanisms that will make it uh, the operation of these buildings uh, more sustainable because of the reduced fees. We can also use stormwater infrastructure to achieve better neighborhoods. Uh, the roughly 200-acre area still uh, has clusters of residential, uh, of the former residential neighborhood. Um, we are in no business of displacing people. If anything, we are challenging ourselves to come up with stormwater management solutions that would provide buffer zones or, or interesting, um, uh, interesting ways of blending the residential with the light industrial. So, for example, on the, on the left side of, or right side of that picture, uh, that is the Detroit Edison Public School Academy. It's an excellent charter school that goes from pre-K up to 12th grade. It is located right near Eastern Market, and it would be on the southwestern edge of this proposed Eastern Market expansion. So that would be, for example, one of the uses that we are looking uh, to mitigate any kind of impact from additional truck traffic or anything else, you know. And there we are. <laughs> so do we want to answer questions? Or ask questions, I guess. Um, go ahead. What's the footprint that you're looking at adding uh, to residential development? So um, residential development would be, we, we see uh, the Quindercut, which is this green line, as the prime location for residential development. Uh, if you're familiar with the Quindercut, it goes from Riverfront up to uh, Gratiot. And you don't have buildings coming down to the cut. It is kind of surrounded by a service drive. North of Gratiot up to Mac, you have really great buildings right next to the bike lane. And those are the ones that we would love to see either in a, in an organized urban design plan, see some kind of vision for, for redevelopment of those, but those could accommodate hundreds of units. Uh, Dan mentioned Shed 4. Shed 4 is also proposed as a mixed-use residential development uh, of our own making. Um, however, 
we are not necessarily looking to, to heavily focused on residential development quite yet. We need to make sure that our priority is to, to have this, this expanded area to accommodate a wholesale role before we start replacing it with more mixed use. So, yep. Anybody had a question here? Okay. All righty. Uh, if that's it, then thank you very much. <laughs> Come to Easter Market. <laughs>